Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II podcast. I gotta get this done and edited and up because I have to tear down the studio because we are going mobile. The At Computer Studio is going mobile tomorrow because as you hear this, it'll be today for you. And I will be on site in an undisclosed location here in Southwest Florida for the final filming of the independent short film called Walking Point. It's a story of a young USMC private and his battle dog whose main goal is not only to survive the war and to go back to the new love of his life, but to make sure his battle dog Duke survives the war and gets returned back to his patriotic family who donated him to the Marine Corps and to defeat the Empire of Japan. And before we bring on our guest for today's episode, I just want to get a little house cleaning out of the way. First of all, we have a new URL for our incredibly confusing website. That URL is simply WTSPWorldWar2.com. That's WTSPWWII.com. You can find all the information about the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast via that URL. And while you're on the internet, feel free to track us down on our Facebook page, our Twitter page, and our Instagram. I don't actually have a Twitter page and Instagram page dedicated solely to the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. However, it does basically um, provide information for this podcast and all my other podcasts and my reenacting and everything I do in my daily life. If you're on Instagram, simply look for me at DTrain410. DTrain410. If that's a little confusing, DTrain was my radio name. And that name carried over to my podcast that I do with my friend Dave. If you're on Twitter, you can find me at Donovan410, Donovan410. And if you're looking for us on Facebook, you can track us down at Scuttlebutt Podcast. So go to facebook.com forward slash Scuttlebutt Podcast. And thank you so much, and thanks for all the continued support, and let's get on with the show. This episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast has been brought to you by our friends at Act Computers. Act Computers has been servicing the IT needs of Southwest Florida since 2004. They specialize in residential computer repair, laptop repair, tablet repair, as well as small and medium business networking. Act Computers also offers multiple online-based services, such as two-form factor authentication for when needing to access company files and programs over the internet, online backup solutions, antivirus solutions, as well as remote computer repair. So even if you do not live in the Southwest Florida area, but you are having some minor computer issues you could use some help with, as long as you have internet access, Act Computers can help. Give them a call at 239-283-1120. Let them know that you heard about them on our podcast and get $25 off in labor of any service. So whether you need help with your business network, your child's computer fixed, or the laptop keyboard replaced after that issue with the wine, give Act Computers a call at 239-283-1120 or go to act-capecoral.com. And joining us via Skype today from the Springfield Armory National Historical Site is curator well hold on a second curator alex mckenzie and one of the rangers scott galsman how are you gentlemen doing this morning good yeah doing very well thank you i gotta say i'm sitting here looking at you guys on skype and you guys have some gnarly beards growing out loving it i guess that's one of the fringe benefits of uh being a uh, ranger and uh, working at a historical site yeah we've got uh you know 
Uh, we follow uh, 1875 dress codes. <laughs> Before we get into the history of Springfield Army, let's get a little history on you guys. I guess we'll start with um, Alex first. What got you into uh, to the position you're at today? Um, dogged persistence. The uh, basically, I've always had an interest in history. You know, from as a kid, you know, getting into reenacting, getting into you know that scene as much as much as I can handle. And then when I went to college, it was straight into a history degree. It's never undeclared, and so there was always that kind of passion. And so the opportunity arose to start volunteering at Springfield Armory, uh, which is right down the road from where I went to college, and kind of played that for a while and uh, volunteered and interned, working on my education and. And then that turned into a uh, staff position. And so now I'm uh, living the dream here, taking care of the uh, amazing museum collections here at Springfield Armory. Now you said you got started in reenacting. Was it Civil War, Revolutionary War? What what was your passion when it came to that? Yeah, it was definitely Civil War for me. And how about you, Scott? Give us a little background on you. Yeah, so um, I started working for the U.S. Forest Service when I was 18. Uh, both my parents actually did that out in uh, Northern California. And uh, so I did that for a number of years, um, nine or so. I ended up getting my uh, master's in, in teaching eventually. I decided I wanted to pursue uh, being a history teacher and did that for a couple of years and, and discovered that I I kind of missed being outside, stuck indoors with little arrow slit windows all the time. I never knew what was going on. So I looked around and I thought, you know, the, the Park Service is a really great mix of, uh, of education and outdoors. And so I started working seasonally out at uh, Oregon Caves National Monument. And uh, as I was looking at different jobs, I saw, I saw Springfield Armory pop up. And, uh, and I said, oh, yeah, that's, that's where I want to work. So applied a couple different times and, and eventually got a uh, seasonal job out here. So I packed up the truck and... And drove on out, and they ended up at the tail end of my first season. They had a permanent job opening, and uh, and I applied for it and was able to snag it. So, right place at the at the right time. Yeah, I think that's one of the things a lot of people don't take into consideration when it comes to the uh, park ranger service. That a lot of you guys are in fact historians, and the historic side and the preservation of history actually plays a large role when it comes to working as a uh, ranger in a park service. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even even as in a, in a what you would consider a, a majority nature park, you know, there's there's oftentimes almost always some kind of human history uh, involved in that. And so you're you're not only dealing with nature, but you you have to talk. You're talking about the people that were involved in that site as well. Now, when researching the uh, Springfield Army Historical Site, am I correct when I hear that you guys are the actually the only? Um, national historical site, I mean, national park site in all of Massachusetts. Is that correct? No, we're the only national park in western Massachusetts. Okay. Funny considering we're such a small state. But, uh, uh, but yeah, most of the parks, and actually most of the other parks are also historic sites, um, but they're nestled in and around Boston, which has got a ton of history. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, we're the only one towards the western end. And that's got to be one of the great things about living on the East Coast is, I mean, that's where our country started. I mean, you guys are just probably up to your elbows in history if you just know where to look and to actually have passion for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, that's one of the great uh, aspects of uh, working at this site, the history of Springfield Armory alone, starts during the Revolution and kept going all the way up through 
of the 20th century. So just in this one spot, there's tons of history. And then you expand a little bit more in, through Massachusetts, out towards Boston, or even in New England. I mean, there's, there's tons, and it's awesome. Let's roll back to 1777 uh, during the founding and how the Springfield Armory came to be. Uh, you guys want to take us down that road a little bit? Yeah, sure. Basically, the story starts with Henry Knox. Uh, if, for folks who know their revolutionary history early on, uh, just after the battles of Lexington and Concord, the, uh, the British were basically cornered in Boston. And our new commander, George Washington, needed a way to get them out. So he had Henry Knox go to Fort Ticonderoga and take the artillery from up there and drag them down in the wintertime. And in the process, actually ended up going right by the grounds here uh, in Springfield. Uh, you know, these are big siege cannons. So he had big teams of oxen and lots of crews to get cannons out to Boston. And uh, we think that's the first time that Henry Knox really spotted this plot of land here in Springfield. Because shortly after, of course, uh, Boston celebrates Evacuation Day coming up here soon, uh, uh, next week, in fact, uh, which is the day the British evacuated Boston. Helpfully coincides with St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. But the thing is, shortly after that, within a few months, uh, they, you know, the new Continental Army said, hey, we need a storage depot. We need a place to concentrate all our military supplies, a place to bring stuff in to make sure it's serviceable and good repair. We need a place to roll paper cartridges and maintain basically everything from carriages to tents to muskets to cannon, what have you, and then distribute as needed for the Continental Army. And after a pretty, you know, a decent discussion, they ended up settling on Springfield. And so it was established in 1777 as a Continental Arsenal run effectively by George Washington, Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army. Now, from what I understand, one of the strategic benefits and the reason they chose that location is, one, it's on a bluff, and so you have a 360 view. But I guess you guys also located a little bit north of the Connecticut River uh, where the infield falls are, and so that provides you guys protection from um, naval ships. Yep. Yeah, you got it. In fact, uh, if you guys ever visit, you might fly into Windsor Locks uh, where Bradley Airport, and the locks were put in in the 1830s. Uh, to get around those rapids and so really improve transportation. But that's not to say there wasn't good transportation anyway. I mean, there's major north-south roadways, east-west roadways uh, going through Springfield. The other aspects were, uh, you know, our major river here is the Connecticut River, but that was too big to deal with for manufacturing purposes. But there's also other water power here uh, as well, in addition to quite a number of uh, uh, individual gunsmiths and trained skilled laborers who knew how to make a musket. Now, I guess as a Kentucky boy, I should know this answer, but I'm going to admit I am naive on it. Um, General Henry Knox, is that the same Knox from the Fort Knox fame? Yeah, he ended up being, you know, the guy started as a bookseller in Boston, yeah. which is amazing. I mean, he was basically self-taught, but knew his stuff enough that uh, Washington made him his chief of artillery um, and served in that capacity through the war. And then eventually he became one of the country's first secretaries of war. So he was running the whole military from his cabinet position. Quite an influential and really interesting guy. Uh, so it's no wonder they, they named the big Ford after him. So let's get into the actual founding of Springfield and the, uh, their contribution to the, well, I guess we'll start in Revolutionary War and then we'll make our way up a little bit to World War II. What was the one of the first rifles that was manufactured out of that um, armory? Basically, the first musket they made was basically a copy of the French Charlotte 
We call it a Model 1795 today. Sometimes collectors will call it that, but really, you know, they refer to it as a Charleville pattern. And the Charleville is what they had in in the arsenals from the Revolution. Um, once it became clear that the Americans were probably going to win this uh, war, France really put some major support into it, and that included some decent muskets. And so after the Revolution was over, you know, Springfield here continued to be an arsenal, a storage area, and had tons of muskets in it, but they were French. And so once those, you know, 20 years later or so, they start to wear out, they're getting old, hey, we need some replacements for our army and for our militia. And so they say, oh, well, just copy what we've already got on hand. And so the very first muskets, they're flintlocks, they're smoothbores, and they're meant for heavy infantry. So they weren't making rifles here quite yet. Now, obviously, the Springfield Armory, they really got their wheel spinning, and they had a huge contribution to the North when it came to the Civil War. I guess our production up North outweighed what they were able to do down in the, down in the South tenfold. I mean, I think it's safe to say that the Springfield Armory had a huge role to play in the uh, Civil War. Yeah, I would say ab- absolutely. Um, you know, as uh, fairly early on in the war, the Harper's Ferry was uh, was essentially destroyed. Some equipment was able to be salvaged by the Confederates and then sort of distributed to, uh, to several different locations throughout that area. And that essentially put paid to that location, however. And then uh, the, the main production facility up north is the Springfield Armory, but not only is, is this place producing firearms, I mean, there's a number of uh, contractors within the north that, that are producing firearms. And, you know, some of them weren't, you know, it's kind of like uh, similar to, to looking at World War II. You know, not all of them were necessarily initially firearms manufacturers, but they're able to use their existing manufacturing infrastructure to, to produce firearms for the union. And oftentimes, a lot of them technically interchangeable, right, with, with what the Springfield Armory is producing, which is, which is a you know kind of a feat unto itself right there that that really lends itself to uh, helping with logistics as far as sending out firearms and parts and pieces to different units that are spread uh, across different battlefields. Yeah, and I think one of the things to add on there, it's Scott's got a great point in terms of uh, you know it, just that concept of interchangeability within the timeline of Springfield Armory. The Civil War was really the first big test of. Springfield and Army Ordinance's obsession, let's say, with interchangeable parts. Um, when they were first making muskets here, they were almost exclusively by hand, with very little machinery. And what machinery they had, they were making by hand. So it wasn't very accurate, and the parts they made weren't interchangeable at all. I mean, you basically had to hand fit your locks together, hand fit the locks to the stocks, hand fit your barrels. And, you know, it was a time-consuming process. I mean, they were, you know, you look at some of these that are in the museum collection side by side, and they look almost exact, and it's amazing the quality of work they were able to do. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't tight enough tolerance to do interchangeability. So, you know, to a degree, there was really no such thing as spare parts like we know them today. And that had a huge impact on the battlefield. And so uh, Army Ordnance and, and Springfield Armory and Harper's Ferry as the two major armories really had it in their goal. They knew they could see the benefits of interchangeable parts. They just didn't know how to get there. And so by the early 1840s, late 1830s, that realm, they just started to figure it out and they got it. They got a process. And so uh, they had probably, you know, of course, they never know it at the time, 
but they had a good 10 years or so, 15 years to, to hone their processes, hone what the, the, how they were going to make things. So by the time the Civil War broke out, they were actually in a dynamite position to really scale up because that's the beauty of a process like interchangeability. It's scalable. So instead of having a few hundred guys in workshops that are, you know, one guy's responsible for the lock, one guy's responsible for the barrel, you can have multiple people who are less skilled who do one cut or one process. And then that combines and, you know, you start to get more of a workflow. You know, you're working your way towards uh, uh, assembly lines and things like that. But with that interchangeability, it's scalable. So when Springfield Armory got the word, hey, there's a war on, all of a sudden you get this big influx of uh, cash from the government that says, hey, we need muskets, we need them fast. They pull in a bunch of people, train them, uh, buy new machinery, scale up production to the tune of 5,000 workers here during the Civil War, who were then, you know, at the peak, turning out 350,000 muskets in a year. And that was in 1863-1864. And they're all interchangeable with each other. And so Springfield Armory ends up making more than any other contractor combined. But they're also overseeing those contractors because part of the deal with getting that contract was you had to be interchangeable with Springfield Armory. They wanted the guys on the battlefield to be able to get their muskets back up and running again as soon as possible. And they all wanted them to fire the same ammunition. They all wanted consistency and uniformity, which is, you know, kind of a hallmark of a military operation. But when it comes down to manufacturing or supply and logistics, uh, that's huge. And so that was, of course, a big reason why the Union uh, was in a much better position to provide those muskets en masse to this rapidly growing army and have all those muskets be consistent with one another, whether it was within the Army of the Potomac or the Army of the Tennessee or whichever Union army was spread around the country. Of course, it also helps that, you know, the Union Army was in the South and they were tearing up their transport networks and cutting off their supply lines for uh, raw materials. Uh, in fact, if you visit here at Springfield Armory, we have a large number of Confederate-made uh, firearms. And you can contrast the consistency and uniformity of Union-made muskets at Springfield Armory with whatever the Southerners were able to get their hands on, because there's all sorts of different calibers. Uh, there's all sorts of different quality uh, and you'll, you'll see a lot of brass in Confederate-made weapons simply because they couldn't get their hands on good iron. So really, you know, this, there was this, you know, industrial sleeping giant up here, to borrow a phrase from later on, that just woke up. And because they had the power of interchangeable parts, they were able to scale it up quickly and uh, meet that demand for this massive Union Army that just trounced the Southerners. And one of the issues with interchangeability is it can be expensive and time-consuming on the front end mm -hmm. to be able to create the infrastructure to do that. And so unless, unless you have, have incentive and the, and the monetary backing to, to create this, it's not something early on in the, in the early to mid-1800s that everybody's necessarily doing. So if, you, if you've already got the capability on hand, it makes it much easier to, as Alex said, to, to increase production. And it's been, it was found later on in, uh, in World War I, in some instances, that switching to the interchangeability, right, actually allows a faster production of firearms occasionally. So, so that can be, um, once you've got it on the front end, it makes the whole process faster and simpler. Well, and that's, let's not overlook the logistical nightmare on the military side. If you don't have interchangeability and you're getting 
certain parts from certain manufacturers that only fit certain guns. Then you have to provision them, divide them up, make sure A, B, and C get sent out to this unit, A, B, and C get sent out to that unit. Whereas if you have interchangeability, you're streamlining everything. You're minimizing the you know different locations of which you're ordering parts from, and it makes it a heck of a lot easier to get those parts to the men on the front line, and it just streamlines the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and to a degree, it's often overlooked in production. Uh, here at Springfield Armory that, you know, people will often, you know, we get tons of calls on a uh, serial number, blah, 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 mm-hmm. um, all about it. Or, you know, uh, one of the challenges is we can really only divine roughly when that uh, firearm was made. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the armory wasn't only making complete rifles. They were also making spare parts. And a lot of the, the tallies of production for Springfield Armory, they only consider a complete rifles, when in fact they were making standalone receivers with serial numbers. And, you know, of course, this is after muskets once they have receivers. Sure. Uh, you know, they're making spare parts by the boatload. In fact, during World War One, they shut down regular production of uh, complete rifles for two months in the middle of the war simply to make spare parts. They said, we don't need complete rifles. We just need to keep the ones we have going. So just make spare parts, and that's all. So there's this whole other aspect that, you know, to keep that going and, and uh, maintain that those logistics lines by not making complete rifles. Well, I think that's one of the things we as historians and um, reenactors, we tend to overlook. We, we find an object, and this kind of reminds me of the whole stamping on the M1 helmets that I did a few episodes back. People think they can look at the serial number on their on their helmets and get an exact date, but it's not the case. Back then, they were concerned with getting equipment, getting materials made to win the war. They weren't worried about cataloging stuff for historical aspects for 150 yeah. years later for collectors to call somebody and hopefully easily get a date things were manufactured. That was, one, not even in their mind. They are concerned about cataloging, coming up with serial numbers primarily for tracing quality control, not as a historical timestamp. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's interesting, um, you said, you know, Springfield Armory rolled out their production line, their assembly line, in 1866, yet the general public always wants to give Henry Ford credit when he rolled his out in 1913, but you guys clearly got the job done a heck of a lot earlier than uh, Henry Ford, but he always seems to be the poster child of the assembly line and productivity. Well, we, we can actually take that back a little further, um, and uh, uh Thomas Blanchard, who built a number of machines here at the Springfield Armory, starting in around 1822 with uh, what's known as the Blanchard blade. So it's essentially a, a duplicating device for making gun stocks. Um, he he created 13 other machines and and actually arranged them in an assembly line, uh, and that was in the mid 1820s. So that's that's going back even further. Yeah, well, I I don't I throw a little asterisk in there yeah. in terms of uh, you know Henry Ford certainly was innovative in his factory design in terms of using mm-hmm. conveyor belts and automating the process um, to really you know the the assembly line as a as a modern term yeah. um, you know stuff wasn't moving like that in the Civil War yeah, yeah. Uh, however we can you know I think the more accurate term is you know, an argument can be made rather for Springfield Armory being one of the earlier places for mass production. Yeah. So you're 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 producing a particular thing that's got some complexity to it in large numbers, and that certainly happened during the Civil. You know, eight hundred thousand of a complex rifle musket that are completely interchangeable 
uh, with each other is no small feat and certainly an argument for mass production there. Yeah, it's funny, as you're talking about the stock duplicating machine, in my mind I'm visualizing a larger scale version of something we use to duplicate car keys nowadays. I'm sure it's a lot more sophisticated than that, but when you're talking about this duplicating machine, that's for some reason that's the image I got in my mind. Well, well that's the analogy that we often use, actually. Um, the, the, the concept is, is very similar, in truth. Let's fast forward to World War One, the war to end all wars. Now, was the 1903 Springfield, was that the first rifle that you got that was produced that was predominantly used during World War I, or was there a model that came out prior to that? There was a U.S. rifle that was first. Uh, it was the Krag, the Krag Jorgensen, model 1892-1898 rifles and uh, various carbines. That was our first smokeless. So once they figure out a good uh, smokeless rifle in 1892, the U.S. Army says, hey, we like the Krag. And basically, that has a fairly short life, even though it's a pretty cool rifle. Mm -hmm. It has a short life because, uh, you know, our first foray into, you know, international warfare is against Spain. And our crags go up against uh, Spanish Mausers. And they discovered that Spanish Mausers are a whole hell of a lot better than our crags. And so, actually, they end up sending it back to Springfield Armory where they kind of pick apart the Mauser design with uh, multiple locking lugs on the bolt and, and their configuration on their magazine. And so they, they pinch a bunch of different ideas from Mauser and then basically put together the Model 1903 over a course of years. You know, we've got the developmental stuff here from 1900 to 1903, and they adopt the what's effectively the, the final design in 1903. Was that the only model they were producing at that time, or were there other model rifles in... Uh firearms being produced during the war uh well interestingly and this this gets into this sets us up perfectly for world war ii mm -hmm. um they by nature of the way the armory worked as a government factory uh you know one of the interesting things about this place is you know springfield armory here wasn't working for a profit it was simply here to provide research and development and manufacturing for the u.s army they had no other customers so when uh, there was no war on, the employment level here was uh, a few hundred, you know, very small. And when Congress would declare war, that's when all of a sudden this big appropriation would come into Springfield Armory. And basically the, the armory brass here would go, oh, crap, we've got to scale up real fast. Because if you think about it, by the time Congress declares war, it's almost too late to start preparing. Sure. You've got to, immediately uh, start to scale up and you know having the concept of interchangeability helps but you've still got to buy machinery you've got to train your labor you've got to uh, uh, bring it you've got to find more space if you need it to try to keep up with this rapidly expanding AEF uh, the expeditionary force which you know they're bringing on men and training them as soon as they can so in World War one they ended up in this crazy scenario where they said they made some really interesting pragmatic decisions uh, where they said, you know, they said, number one, the Model 1903 is our standard U.S. military rifle. Number two, Springfield Armory is not going to be able to produce all the 1903s we need. So what are we going to do? And so they started looking around. And interestingly, you know, it's one of the neat aspects of kind of the way some of this stuff works with industrial production for uh, military use U.S. companies were not quiet when the U.S. was not in war. Uh, there were a number of companies that were contracting out to 
who would become our allies, the British, uh, the French, the Russians, who were all involved in the war, uh, there were U.S. companies that were making rifles and pistols and, and ammunition and all sorts of stuff. So there were three in particular that caught the U.S. eye once we started getting into it. That was Winchester and Remington, and then Remington subsidiary out of Eddystone. And those three manufacturers were tooled up in making British rifles, P-14, uh, which is kind of an obscure rifle, uh, kind of a neat one. But basically, they were making these P-14s for the British. And once the U.S. got in the war, the British contracts ended. So the pragmatic decision there was to say, all right, you know, option A, we ask these factories to retool to make the Model 1903. We want interchangeability. We want them to have interchangeability with Springfield uh, manufacturing. We'll get Rock Island up and making 1903s again. We want everybody to be interchangeable. We don't have that kind of time. So what's our next best option? Well, you know, the, the P-14 is chambered for 303 British. Uh, and it's got some weird aspects to it. The British don't have as tight of a standard as the U.S. on interchangeability. There's, you know, uh, a Remington-made P-14 is not going to interchange with a Winchester-made M-14. That's kind of a problem from the U.S. perspective. So they said, all right, well, what if we uh, rechamber the P-14s to 30-06 and we get rid of some of the bells and whistles that are on there and we ensure that this new rifle, no matter where it's made, is interchangeable, or as interchangeable as we can make it. And they did. And they said, all right, uh, we're going to call this the Model 1917, and that'll be our backup. Uh, but interestingly, you know, these factories, I mean, Eddystone and Winchester and Remington were monster factories, and they were actually able to produce hundreds of thousands into the millions of 1917s over the course of the, you know, the 18 months that we were involved in the war, they were able to outproduce Springfield. Uh, so there, in fact, there were more 1917s than 1903s out there in, in U.S. hands, uh, simply because of that pragmatic decision, hey, we need rifles in their hands anyway, you know, regardless, and, you know, we'll do the best we can, but time is a factor, so get moving. So it was a remarkably pragmatic decision, and they got rifles good rifles into the Doughboy's hands, and uh, they made it work. Now, you're talking about um, how they, obviously, during peacetime, you you throttle down your production, you throttle down your employment. What is the current footprint of, as far as square footage of the Springfield Armory, and at any point, I'm assuming, obviously, when it was first built, it wasn't the size that it is now. Did, was there any construction going on during World War One, or was it already kind of at the same footprint it's at now? On World War One, it was basically the way it was. I mean, they, they had a major uh, additions for uh, crag production. Once they adopted the crag and started smokeless, they, they upgraded their facilities and had production for uh, smokeless rifles. But when World War One rolled around, I mean, that was one of the things they considered. You know, hey, if Springfield Armory is going to scale up, we need floor space. Yeah. We need to have new construction. And they decided not to. Um, so it was a conscious decision to say, no, we're not going to have any new manufacturing space. We're going to utilize every square inch of what we got uh, in 1917, but we're really going to rely on, you know, Springfield Armory as much as it can. Uh, and granted, up to 1917, it, it had already made 600,000 1903s. So those are already in the arsenal, which is why for a few months there, they were just making spare parts just to keep what they had going. 
so they said, hey, we'll utilize this private floor space making model 1917s, and, uh, and, the, and then we'll do the best we can uh, with what we got at Springfield Armory, along with the other government arsenal out at uh, Rock Island, Illinois. And Alex, did the, um, the switch to, to sort of stop making 1911s for that brief window, did, mm-hmm. that, did that free up a significant amount of floor space, do you think? Yeah, oh, that was a conscious decision. I mean, right before World War I, uh, Don, they ended up making, uh, they, you know, Springfield, <laughs> the real Springfield Armory <laughs> 1911s um, were made here from about, you know, up through, you know, uh, 1916 or so, 1914, 1916. And a lot of that, they were kind of doing busy work. Uh, they were making the argument government can make government uh, mm-hmm. 1911s cheaper, but the conscious decision was made to stop. You know, hey, we need to specialize and focus on what we really need. Colt clearly has it under control making 1911s, so Springfield Armory doesn't need to make them. And so they stopped making other random things and concentrated on just 1903s. Actually, 1903s pattern 1913 patent sabers they made here. They made 1910 uh, bolos. They made all sorts of arms chests, and of course, uh, along with uh, uh, the Model 1903 rifles, they made Model 1905 bayonets uh, to go along with them. So it wasn't exactly only rifles, they were making other things as well. And then it's always fun to bring up patent sabers when yeah. you can. But, uh, uh, but really, you know, their priority was those rifles and to do with what, what they really needed. Again, more of those pragmatic decisions um, to get the AEF armed and equipped as quickly as possible. And so now we fast forward to World War II. Um, we're gearing up. We're getting ready to send the Marines out to uh, the Pacific, down to Guadalcanal. They're uh, still using the favored 1903 Springfield bolt-action rifle. They're very proficient with it. Somewhere along the line, someone decided we need something with a higher rate of fire and a uh, little simplicity when it comes to loading it. And so the research and development began on that. Um, give us a little history of... Uh, how things changed from the 1903 to uh, where we were at the end of the war with uh, with the M1 Garand. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a cool story. Yeah. Well, and I think one thing to keep in mind you know, before we really concentrate on the M1 is that uh, you know they, they realized fairly early on that that the you know semi-automatic is a is a system that they'd like to move to, and those things exist as you know in the early 1900s as as hunting rifles. Uh, some automatics, but the, one of the issues is that you're taking a battle rifle cartridge, you know, and they're not, they're not really interested in, in making something less powerful. So they want to use this, this full power 30-06, in our instance, uh, cartridge, and, and it's creating a, a powerful explosion, and then you have the added complexity of a lot of moving parts, and you have to figure out how, how are you going to get those parts to move. Right? What system are you going to use? Gas, recoil, all kinds of different things, and and you you need the you need strong enough material, right, to be able to withstand these forces, and you don't necessarily have the material science perhaps uh, behind that, or the ability to create things that aren't necessarily light enough to really be mobile and to function as a military rifle reliably. And so that's that's one of the things that the armory is experimenting with fairly early on and and something that uh that they're trying to to make happen and it's actually kind of a long process which I can let Alec. Yeah, I mean there there's lots of examples of trying to retrofit model 1903s to be semi-auto 
Um, we've still got the examples in the collection. Some of them are pretty wild. But there was always the, the kind of support from Army Ordnance. I mean, one of the reasons they're on 1903 actions is there was actually legislation passed um, to allow the armory to give uh, inventors barrels. You know, inventors who might make the next semi-automatic rifle aren't going to have, you know, rifling machines and, you know, chambering. You know, they're not going to be able to make their own components in a lot of instances. So Springfield Armory was allowed to distribute uh, 1903 parts to inventors so they could work on their ideas to make a new semi-auto. So you get a lot of stuff wrapped around, you know, and, it, and it's wonderful that it's in uh, 30-06 because that's really the, the round the government wanted to use. And uh, uh, so there's lots of wild ideas out there, but they ended up seeing some talent out there which we've seen in the past. Thomas Blanchard is one of those guys they saw back in the 1820s. And they said, hey, you've got some great ideas. Why don't you come to Springfield Armory and develop them? The next guy they saw was a guy named John Grant. And they uh, saw him. He had some ideas uh, working for, uh, oh, the Navy, I think, or the Bureau of Patents or something. I can't remember off the top of my head. But either way, John Grant came here in October 1919. And which is remarkable because we were right in the middle of uh, one of the big downsizings in the uh, wake of World War One. Springfield Armory would get down to some of its smallest employment levels, around 200 guys, which isn't that much here. But they always said, hey, we need this aspect of research and development that is worth keeping, that's worth spending money on. I mean, Springfield Armory got so desperate for work, they started making water meters for Washington, D.C. They started making truck parts uh, for uh, the quartermaster. I mean, they were trying to find really creative ways of keeping uh, some of their talent around and uh, operations going in the 1920s. So it was a pretty slim time here, but there were some amazing guys working here, most notably John Grant. So what ended up happening is they said, hey, John, uh, we like your ideas. We want you to develop them. We're going to make you civil servant. So you're working for the government. But develop the, your ideas for a semi-automatic rifle. Um, and partway through, they also entered into an agreement uh, with John Patterson, uh, who was at the time another rock star designer, um, uh, working mostly for Remington at the time. And, and, you know, a lot of folks might recognize his name from the Patterson device, which was another one of those wacky ideas to make a 1903 semi-auto uh, that almost happened at the end of World War One. But again, you know, for folks who have seen them and for folks who visit here at the Armory, you can definitely see one uh, on display. But that ended up basically turning it into a, a, a pistol, you know, fired pistol ammo, uh, which didn't have enough punch. So, but they wanted John Pedersen to develop a full power rifle. And he ended up doing a lot of really progressive research on ballistics and, and developed uh, Pedersen 276 round, basically seven millimeter that, you know, had enough merit that a lot of the experimentals from Garand and uh, John Pedersen were chambered in 276 Pedersen. So that seemed to be the wave of the future until uh, Chief of Staff Douglas MacArthur said, no, we've got too much 30-06 on hand. <laughs> we need to burn that stuff up. We're, that's our round. And uh, shortly after John Pedersen was out and John Garand's design was finally adopted in 1936 and designated the M1. So... You know, he came on in 1919, and 17 years later, they got the M1. Now, Lore and, has it, uh, not to interrupt, but Lore has it that when he produced the first model, the Army came back and said, hey, you know, we have 
an inordinate amount of M2 ball ammo laying around, can you rechamber the gas chamber on that to accept the less powerful M2 ball ammo compared to the uh, modern version of the 30-06 at the time because um, they wanted to use up all that M2 ball ammo? Is that true, or is that just one of those things that kind of proliferate through history? Yeah, that's a little later. Um, that's about 1940 or so. Yeah, because certainly uh, they were operating off the M1 ball uh, early on. A big heavy, that's a 172 grain bullet. And some major physics happened in there, but they, they liked it. It's got some range on it. I mean, that's why, you know, snipers are using that 175 grain bullet today. It carries, but it packs a punch, which is why they went down to the uh, M2 ball with that uh, 150 grain bullet. And so it, early M1s were certainly wrapped around. His first design was basically his design with a BAR mag full of nice. cartridges. And in fact, he, he was out there so much, he, there was a special round that Frankfurt Arsenal made up because his first designs were actually operated off a primer setback. Um, so if you can imagine it, it had this big quarter-inch primer in the back of it that moved as much of a heart attack that that gives you. But basically, when the when the charge went off, the primer would kick back enough and hit against the bolt face that that would start the action moving. And those were his first designs. Incredibly efficient, but you've got to make this specialized ammo. They ended up abandoning the primer setback with the very earliest uh, designs and then going towards your standard 30-06. And then John Patterson's 276 came in for a while. And then finally, in 1936, they settled on the M1 round for the M1 rifle um, with an M1 bayonet. And then shortly after was when they moved from the gas trap design to the, the gas port. Um, and to be honest, I can't answer your question about whether that had more, more to do with that M2 ball. That's a good one. Uh, I'll have to dig into that and find that out. But, but they came in about the same time, the gas port configuration on the M1 and the M2 ball uh, are uh, very close if they're not related at all. Well, part of the reason I bring that up is as I learned, um, luckily before I took it out, but the first time I looked into taking my M1 out to do some live firing and doing some research, I discovered, hey, don't go down to Walmart and buy commercially available 30-06 because it's too powerful and you risk bending your operating rod. You either yeah. need to A, find some antique M2 ball ammo, or B, find rounds designed to shoot out of the M1. And American Eagle makes some, but it's like $31 for 25 rounds. So it's incredibly expensive to take your rifle out and shoot it if you're buying over-the-counter ammo that is designed to work appropriately in that rifle and not cause permanent damage to it. Yeah, and that's you know that's one of the things when you can considering you know the semi-automatic uh, mechanism versus a bolt action. You know, inherently bolt actions are, are able to to function with a wider range of ammunition and powder charges, essentially. And that can be the case in, in more modern uh, semi-automatic or, or fully automatic firearms, but, uh, but some of them have a, have a limited range of power, essentially, that they're, they're able to take without seeing, you know, disintegration of your, of your components, really. And so now at this point, the Marine Corps, they have... Uh pretty much secured Guadalcanal. The Army's coming in, and they got these nice fancy crates with these new rifles in them. And um, as the, the boys were sent back to Australia and New Zealand, they were told to turn in a lot of their 1903s unless they were snipers, and they are going to give this newfangled M1 Garand rifle a chance. And as the war progressed on, the M1 was adopted and was heavily used. But at some point, somebody figured, hey, 
It's a great rifle, but it's large, it's heavy. Um, can we come up with something on a similar platform with a little bit smaller weight and a, a smaller round? Is that how the M1 carbine came to life, or is there a different story behind that? Yeah, I mean, the, they were certainly looking for something smaller and more maneuverable, um, you know, for certain officers, non-coms, uh, paratroopers, that don't need a full-blown battle rifle. And so there was that competition, part of which happened here. We've got John Garan's uh, prototypes for his submission that almost became the M1. Um, but Carbine Williams had a better design with Winchester uh, that ended up winning out. But basically, yeah, you're right. I mean, this was, hey, we need something that's a little more scaled down, a little more portable that, uh, you know, can be used for those uh, who don't need quite so much punch but still has value. Yeah, something less than a full-power battle rifle, more than a pistol. What was the last rifle that was actually produced at the Springfield Armory for military use? I know basically production stopped in 1968. Is that correct? Yeah. So uh, the last one produced was was the M14. And what I was surprised to find out, and to be honest, a little disappointed, um, for those modern firearm enthusiasts, the Springfield Armory XD 9mm you carry on your hip with a concealed carry permit has nothing to do with you guys. The name was basically sold off to a gentleman who um, basically moved across the country and started a whole new gun manufacturing plant and just simply basically bought rights to the name. Well, actually, this ties back to what I was talking about before with this being a government factory. Um, you know, one of the hallmarks of government is where, you know, it's for the people owned by the people, and therefore the name Springfield Armory uh, is public domain. And so... You know, they're enterprising guys who kind of snagged the name and uh, the the reputation for quality associated with it and started up their own uh, operation. So there was no purchase or anything like that. I mean, it was just a name out there that was available, and they snagged it and ran with it. My understanding is sometime around 1974 in Texas is when the, the company was created and then eventually moved to to Illinois. And I'm not sure exactly what that time, time period was. Um, Using, you know, with the M1A, apparently using the number of uh, surplus components in the, in that semi-automatic version of, of uh, M14 clone, basically, without the, without the select fire capability. Um, yeah. yeah. And then I don't know if they actually ended up purchasing. So I heard some rumors that they purchased some uh, H&R equipment. I don't know if that's confirmed or not, Alex. But, I can't yeah. comment on that. Yeah, either. that's just kind of sideline research. We get a lot of phone calls. Yeah about that at the front desk and so um so I, i've you know just trying been trying to do research so i can i can help educate folks who uh who think they have an m may have an m14 uh and uh and <laughs> yeah well it's funny as you said it's public domain and there's enterprising guys um when my grandfather passed away i inherited his single barrel center brake 16 gauge shotgun and the manufacturer stamped on it is springfield arms company not Springfield <laughs> Armory, but Springfield Arms. Yeah, and actually, you know, and that's that's a little different. I mean, that's a trade name. Um, that was a company that started up uh, in Springfield. It was named Springfield Arms right down the road, but they're private, you know, making uh, shotguns and uh, rifles for the public market. They ended up getting gobbled up by Stevens, Jay Stevens Arms, who still use Springfield as a trade name. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Stevens ends up getting gobbled up by Savage. And so we have often have to distinguish between privately made and, and 
you know, hey, we're Springfield Armory, the military factory. Like I said before, our only customer was was the U.S. Army um, and uh, other branches to a to a limited degree, but uh, they were government made for government use compared to privately manufactured firearms for public retail. And it can be confusing for folks when they're when they're looking on the you know usually on the barrel of their of their 22 or something that says Springfield Arms on there. You know, you're, you're I would imagine your immediate thought is to think that. Oh, it's the the military, the Springfield Armory. Um, so so yeah, so we feel we feel a decent number of phone calls um, about that, and just try to help people kind of kind of figure out what's what's what there. Now, before we wrap up the show, let's go to today and now. You guys are a museum. You're part of the Park Service. People want to come up and take a tour. Where do they go? What can they expect? Do you guys have on-site reenactments going on? What eras? Uh, let's talk about what you guys do today and your mission today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so the the armory currently uh, occupies part of what was the historic Springfield Armory, um, kind of sharing the campus with with uh, Springfield Technical Community College, which started up um, pretty much immediately after the armory was shut down. That uh, that property was uh, acquired by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Who created that college? Um, so you actually had to drive through the college to get to the Springfield Armory. Keep that in mind. Uh, and we're we're kind of at the back of the of the site. We have the the whole, you know the first floor. Of the buildings is the museum. And so folks, you know, we're typically open nine to five, and uh, we have winter hours and and summer hours. In the summertime, we're open seven days a week, basically from November through Memorial Day. We're open Wednesday through Sunday. Uh, it's free, so folks can just come right in. You know, we have parking in front of the museum. You come in and and look around the museum. We typically offer during the weekends, mostly, we'll have some kind of programming, right? Depending on rangers that we have, right, seasonally, there's a number of different programs that people either either create or, or build on from past years. Those are offered several times a day during the weekends, free of charge. We have a number of special events that occur throughout the year uh, that, that actually... Some of them, you know, not even necessarily firearms related, but uh, music, author talks, uh, all kinds of different things that we that we try to try to stay involved with the community about. We also offer school groups, right? We love to have uh, school groups get a hold of us and come in, and we have we have a, several different programs that we can offer to a variety of, of age groups, as well as different different scout groups as well. We always love to to have them come in and, and get a hold of us. Now, Scott, while, while we're talking to you, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Uh, it's going to be a hard, answer, hard question to answer, but I'm going to throw it out there because yep. I, I would love to know, I, you know, what out of everything you have on display there, all the early stuff, all the beta, you know, the production stuff, the things that were never produced, what is the one item in the entire museum that you just blows your mind that you can't believe you have access to, just the, what you think the coolest, most badass thing at the museum? Mm. And, yeah, uh, Alex, you might also think about it too, because that question's coming to you next. Yeah, it's like, what's your, who's your favorite child here? Um, There's always a favorite; you just can't admit to it. <laughs> oh, geez. Okay, well, I gotta say, on display, um, my, well, I'm gonna say, okay, just off the top of my head, my favorite is probably our uh, our Vulcan cannon that we've got. <laughs> Right, I mean, who go big? Or go go home. big, yeah, go big or go home. <laughs> who doesn't love a twenty millimeter, uh, you know, Gatling gun, basically, uh, that you put on ships and airplanes? So, so we have one of those, and I think that's the 
few. We have a couple. Yeah, we have a couple, some new in box uh, <laughs> in storage. Uh, but yeah, but we have a, a sort of a prototypey one. I think that the the armory, uh, you know, was helping General uh, General Electric with uh, with getting that thing figured out. It's kind of a complicated mechanism. And we have one in the in the theater, so sometimes I like to go into the the theater room uh, and sit there and uh, and pretend that's my man cave. And <laughs> <laughs> and we have a number of machine guns on display there, and some Gatling guns, and throughout different different time periods. But yeah, I say the just offhand the Vulcan. And the, Alex, yeah, I think you know uh, it's tough to say. I mean, it changes. Um, you know, in my responsibilities for you know managing the whole collection, you know, I, I've got a um, be equitable with my love. So, but as far as just, oh man, there's so many really cool ones. Um, let's say right now at the moment, one of my favorites is, you know, for, for the, the firearms enthusiasts out there, you know, uh, when the semi-auto pistol trials happen, there are, uh, a number that were tested and evaluated, and, you know, sometimes ultimately rejected. And we have several examples of, you know, and this happened in the late 1890s, early 1900s, when a lot of the companies we know today that are up and running were just getting started, really clamoring for those government contracts. Um, so the founders would be out demonstrating these things. So we've got uh, one of the first 9mm Lugers that was brought here and fired by George Luger. We've got the, the Model 1911 pistol that, was, that actually won the trial. Uh, that happened here, um, and that uh, fired 6,000 rounds without a failure, and that's why they said, yep, that's our pistol. It's now the Model 1911. Uh, but John Browning was here and shot that thing in demonstration. And so we've got ones that Paul Mauser was here, and you know, and, and to geek out on, on some of the firearm developers, I mean, not to mention John Garan, but um, Julian Hatcher. I mean, if, if people haven't read the book of the Garand by Julian Hatcher or, or Hatcher's Notebook, they need to. I mean, he was here uh, along with Townsend Whalen and other kind of unsung heroes uh, there. But but some of these uh, within the uh, firearm development community are, are kind of well-known names. And these guys were here. They were handling these things. They were playing with these things. They were making decisions that had uh, effect on the battlefield. John Thompson, another one. Uh, was here. Um, uh, John Thompson was a fun one. I mean, he made the decision to adopt the 45 ACP and uh, and then went on and developed a submachine gun to wrap around it that's named after him called the Tommy Gun. So, uh, so there's some amazing pieces, and I just can't pick one. But if I had to pick right now, it'd be that Luger 9mm. Now, are a majority of your displays static, or do you guys rotate in a new display to, to kind of focus on to, you know, bring a, a crowd in during a, an you know, an off-season or the busy season? Is there a new display or um, feature that you guys are promoting right now that you want everybody to come out to see? I'd say get out here when you can. We try to get more stuff out on display. Um, you know, for those who are uh, uh, visiting fairly soon, we're going to have some, you know, we don't have a, a rotating exhibit up because we're going to have some work done in t on the interior and uh, might end up closing the museum for a bit, so we haven't put one up, but but in regular, we've got a static display that everyone should check out. And then we try to rotate a smaller display about every, you know, ideally every six months or so. Um, but if you come back once a year or uh, once every couple of years, you, you know, you should see something new. Now, if somebody wants to come to your website and not get confused with the uh, modern day manufacturer Springfield Armory, what URL should they go to in their web browser? So our direct site is www.nps.gov. 
and that's for the entire National Park Service. So, uh, and then forward slash SPAR for Springfield Automatic Rifle. No, <laughs> Springfield Armory uh, is, there, is our Park Service shorthand for that. So NPS.gov slash SPAR. He is a curator, Alex McKenzie, and park ranger Scott Galsman. Did I hit that right, Scott? Scott Galsen, yeah. Scott Galsen, I want to thank you guys so much for coming on the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. It's been a very informative uh, hour interview, and thank you guys so much not only for coming on, but what you do, your efforts to not only preserve American history, but to preserve the history of the original Springfield Armory at the Springfield Armory National Historical Site located in Springfield, Massachusetts. You guys have got to be freezing up there right now, right? We're, we're hoping for spring real soon. <laughs> well, if it makes you feel any better, here in Florida, I woke up to a very brisk 47 degrees, and I'm wearing a hooded sweatshirt right now, freezing my butt oh, off. So okay. if and it helps. Puppy jackets that's, are coming out. That's shorts and T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, I'm about ready to break out the M1, uh, my M1 jacket with the wool lining because it's a bit chilly. But thank you guys so much, and uh, have a great weekend. Yeah, yeah you too. My pleasure. Thanks, man. Thank <laughs> you.